with all that's going on in our world, we need that living hope. Living hope. So, The year was 590 B.C. It was a warm, lazy spring day in Palestine. The watchman atop the city wall was relaxed and daydreaming. The chirping birds had lulled him into a daze. The thought uppermost in his mind as he tried to, to justify his lack of attentiveness was, there had been no threat for years. It will never happen here. As the sun warmed his upturned face, his eyes slowly began to close when something made him start. There was a noise, strangely out of place in this beautiful, idyllic afternoon. It was the kind of noise you or I might hear at a baseball game or a football game. It was a sound of a crowd. Far in the distance, shouts getting louder. It snapped him out of his reverie, and he jumped to his feet, but it was already too late. He could see the enemy sweeping down from the hillsides onto the farmers in the fields. The outer village houses and the children playing in the meadows and the women who had been washing their clothes. An idyllic, warm spring day had been turned into a cacophony of battle cries, wails, and screams of terror. The enemy was upon them. Ten miles away, another drama was unfolding. The same type of setting, a, a lone watchman high atop a city wall. Farmers were plowing the fields. Children were frolicking in the fresh spring grassy meadows, and dogs were yapping at play. Birds were chirping, and women doing their wash in the creek outside the city. The difference was that this watchman was older, more experienced. He had lived long enough to remember. So he was watching, alert, looking intensely at every place where land met sky. Then he saw them as a mirage, not real, real. The moving horizon began to take shape, the shapes of men and horses, and not just any type of men, but Assyrian soldiers, men of war, the enemy. The watchman wasted no time. He immediately grabbed the long upturned brass trumpet at his side and began to blow. He blew his warning in all four directions and repeated it and played it again and again. As he blew his trumpet with all his strength, he saw an instant transformation of the people within his sight. The farmers did not finish the furrow they were plowing. They did not even unhitch their oxen. They just dropped everything and fled as fast as possible toward the city. One could see the women leaving their wash and hurting their children like a mother hand her chicks, hurrying them into the safety of the city walls. When they were all inside, the gates were closed. They were safe. From this position, they could defend their city and fight the enemy. Two cities, two watchmen, two different results. One disaster and death, and one safety and life. In the ancient world, most cities were surrounded by high walls to defend against invading armies. There were only a few gates in and out of the city, and most, if not all, had people assigned 
to watch day and night from the highest possible point, watching for the enemy. And all cities had a warning system. Might be a big gong, it could be criers, or it could be a trumpet. Today we're looking at the final two verses of the book of James. And as we look at this passage, as a precursor to that, I want to look at an Old Testament passage that relates to that. Today we're going to talk about the warning role. The warning role. The prophet Ezekiel wrote to God's people using an analogy to teach a lesson. And I want us to look at what he said. So we're going to look first of all today at Ezekiel 33, 1 through 9. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It'll be on the PowerPoint behind you. It's page 703 in your Bible. It'll be a little bit different in the, in, in the NIV. So, verse 1. Once again a message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, give your people this message. When I bring an army against a country, the people of that land choose one of their own to be a watchman. When the watchman sees an enemy coming, he sounds the alarm to warn the people. Then if those who hear the alarm refuse to take action, it is their own fault if they die. They heard the alarm but ignored it. So the responsibility is theirs. If they had listened to the warning, they could have saved their lives. But if the watchman sees the enemy coming and doesn't sound the alarm to warn the people, he is responsible for their captivity. They will die in their sins, but I will hold the watchman responsible for their deaths. Now, son of man, I am making you a watchman for the people of Israel. Therefore, listen to what I say and warn them for me. If I announce that some wicked people are sure to die and you fail to tell them to change their ways, then they will die in their sins. And I will hold you responsible for their deaths. But if you warn them to repent and they don't repent, they will die in their sins. But you will have saved yourself. The role of the watchman was to warn people so that they could reach safety. And Ezekiel was given this role by God to be a watchman. A watchman. And just like he was given the role as a watchman, so we too have been given the watchman's role. We've been given a warning role. A warning role. Now we get to James 5. Says it a little bit different. James 5, 19 to 20 In the New Living Translation, again, this is page 980. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from the wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Now these two last two verses of James talk about a role most of us are not comfortable with. Most of us say, oh, I... I like the rest of James. Most of it was okay. I'm not sure I like this, this passage. It's about warning. It's about confrontation. We like peace, okay? We like peace. We like to keep the peace. But in our desire to keep peace, we can be like the first watchman in our introduction who ignores the dangers around him and fails to blow the warning trumpet. And it costs people their lives. One of the roles we have as followers of Jesus Christ is to be a watchman, be a watchman. And I want to ask and hopefully answer four questions today. Four questions. The first one is, what does a watchman do? If I'm a watchman, what does that mean? What am I to do? Number two, who does a watchman warn? 
Who does a watchman warn? Number three, how? How do we warn people? Usually not with a trumpet or gong. And what happens when we warn them? What can we expect when we play this role of warning? Let's start with number one. What does a watchman do? Very simply, the watchman, first of all, looks for danger. Looks for danger. It's, it's the job of the watchman to identify danger. And in ancient times, most cities had some form of walled protection. Many people lived and worked the fields right outside the city walls. And during threatening times, a watchman was on constant duty, stationed on a tower or parapet in the highest point of the city. And his job was to look for danger. Very simply, look for danger. Second, what was his, the role and what do we do? Warn the people. Warn the people. Whether it's a trumpet, a gong, a collar, a signal of some sort to warn the people. Because the watchmen could see what no one else could see. From his vantage point, he could see danger. Now, how does this apply to us? If we're all called to be watchmen, what does that mean? Well, in the spiritual realm, we are called to be watchmen. And we see things that many people do not see. In the spiritual realm, we see things that many people do not see. I'll use as an example something called secular humanism. Secular humanism, which has swept our world and has been knocking at the door of our world for many, many years. And there's a, trend, a tremendous danger of secularism or taking God out of our society in every way. And all you have to do is read the news. Look at the news. You see all kinds of pressures. Many of you are in the middle of that battle where people are trying to take God out of every segment of our society, out of the schools, out of politics, out of laws, out of civic society, and maybe online or social media. There's an article in back in two, 2005 that started talking about this trend. It said, an Italian nominee to the European Union's Executive Commission came under sharp attack, both from the European Union parliamentarians and the press for his traditional Catholic views about the sinfulness of homosexual acts. And he tried to hang in there, but ultimately they had him removed because he had a view that was God, godlike. In the same year, Ruth Kelly, who was Britain's education secretary, experienced what many, many said was a prevailing attitude of the European elites toward religion, particularly in the public sphere. From the ban of wearing visible religious symbols in, in French public schools to the refusal of the European U Union to include specific mention of Christianity's influence on Europe's distinctive civilization, a mountain of anecdotal evidence suggested that there was an aggressive form of secularism taking Europe by storm. We looked at that the last two weeks on the video in the Constitution. It started in Europe, but it came here with trying to remove any vestiges of God in our government. It's in God's influence on the Constitution in our form of government. And this Christianophobia that was tied to Europe caused a, a spiritual malaise that pushed Europe into this economic decline. It pushed them into a, a malaise and economic decline. And we in America, our culture has experienced the same trends over the last 20 years. The globalist elite want to exclude 
any reference points of the transcendent or God to anything to do with our society and political life. Many who have been warning of this trend for years are or have been removed from media of all forms. And you've watched that, especially social media. People that have been removed from social media platforms. My daughter, who basically just put some nice verses and she put encouragements, etc., was banned from Twitter. She didn't, if there was nothing controversial politically, she was encouraging people with verses and encouragement from the Word of God. She got banned from Twitter. They want to get anything that refers to God off out of the world. Secular humanism is so dangerous because it removes God as the center of the universe and places humans as the gods in the center. Then, then humans determine truth. Humans determine morality. Humans determine right and wrong. And we've seen the results of that. State laws that require parental notification for dispensing Tylenol in a high school, permission by under 18-year-olds for a tanning salon or body piercing, but no parental permission required at all for an abortion. Many people in America don't see the trends or they're content to bury their heads in the sands of comfort and convenience. We've we've said, well, that's out there. I I don't have to deal with that. Hey, we're in the middle of it now. Transgender laws in some states that have opened up women's restrooms to men and just the past several weeks allowing men to compete as women in the Olympics. And a female claiming to identify as a male swimming topless in a community pool in Iowa. What? Are you serious? Yeah. See something, say something. Now it's say something, get censored. It's real. It's real. In our colleges and universities over the years, truth may not be taught. Values and morality have nothing to do with intellect and character development is an extracurricular activity. It's the training ground. Our public university and and government-run schools are the training ground for tomorrow's leaders. And what do they have? What do they have? Dangers. These are the dangers of life apart from God. Secular humanism. Secularism profoundly affects life, health, family, marriage, and the well-being of every human being on the planet. It totally disregards the Ten Commandments that give us guidelines on how we are to relate to God, our creator, and how we are to relate to our fellow human beings. What would America be like without do not commit murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery? Look for the danger. A watchman looks for the danger and then warns people. We have to see the danger first, then we warn. So who does a watchman warn? Who does the watchman warn? In James 5, it says, My dear brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back again, you can be sure that the one that brings that person back will save that sinner from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Who do we warn? Those who wander from the truth. Now, this can include, and usually starts with people that we would call pre-Christians or people who are outside of Christianity. They're, they're not believers, non-believers. 
In 2 Corinthians 11, 3 to 4, it says, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Now we look around Wisconsin. Um, most people would probably claim that they are spiritual. They're spiritual. They believe in spiritual things or spiritual beings or whatever. Spiritual. But you have to ask, spiritual in what sense? One of the trends with secular humanism is something called syncretism. We've talked about this before. Syncretism is taking a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and creating your own religion. Okay? It's, it's a great idea. You, know, you can create your own God, your own religion, and many people do that. Create your own. It's called syncretism. Say, well, you know, I like the idea of heaven, so... I'll put heaven in the, in the box. I, hell, that's a, ne, ne, oh, I'll, we're not going to use that. We're going to do that. Um, I like the idea of reincarnation because I like to have a second, third, fourth chance and come back again. So you add reincarnation. Um, then you take uh, love. I think love is good. Justice, no, we're going to do just love. And so you, what they do is they take a little, it's like a grab bag approach to religion. And it's created out of human uh, mentality and our human mean, being. My sex is what I feel like today. It might change tomorrow, but today I'm a man, or today, yesterday I'm a woman, whatever it might be. Some people just have no religion at all. Some worship a different God than the one true God of the Bible. It's a different Jesus, different spirit, different gospel. And that's nothing new. It's been going on for centuries. Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians, and the question is, who do we warn? We warn those who do not believe in Jesus Christ as a Messiah and warn them that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Talk about the God of the Bible, the living God. If we do not warn non-Christians and they die spiritually or eventually physically, we are responsible. Let me say that again. If we do not warn unbelievers and they die spiritually or eventually physically, we are responsible. Now, we're not responsible for their response. Just the warning. Just the warning. We can't, we can't make people respond, but we are called to warn. Who do we warn? Pre-Christians. Now, there are also people who have once known Jesus, but they wandered from the truth. This would be Christians. Let her be. Christians. People who were once active believers, followers of Jesus Christ, but have chosen to walk away. And it says if if one of you should wander from the truth. Now, the word wander sounds like it's a passive word, like, I got lost. Okay, I got lost. Um, this word is not in the passive sense. It's, it is conscious active. In other words, the word wander is not like a passive getting lost. It's a conscious active choice of path. So when you say somebody wandered from the truth, it wasn't they accidentally got lost. They made a conscious active choice to depart or to leave from the truth. It's also intellectual and doctrinal because we choose what truths we believe and ultimately affects number three, our behavioral and moral. So it's a, this is a conscious, active matter of our will, intellectual, doctrinal, we choose what we believe and it affects behavior. Wandering from the truth is called apostasy. 
And many today change what they believe to accommodate their moral behavior. You know, I, my behavior is this, so I'm going to just change my beliefs about it. And this subjectivism that we just think we can kind of wander and, and make decisions and leave the, the truth of the Word of God aside. Wandering. How we change, as a matter of our will, we change or adapt our belief system to match our moral values. That's moral wandering. And we must be sensitive to moral wandering in our lives first. Okay. Am I wandering in any moral sense in my life? And then, it says, be sensitive to moral wandering in the lives of fellow believers, other people. So we can warn them. One writer says, as Christians who care for the church, we ought to be sensitive to moral changes in our own behavior while avoiding judgmentalism and be sensitive to changes in our brothers and sisters. In our day, moral wandering may be as sure an indication of apostasy as mental theological wandering. Wandering. So number four, how do, we, how do we warn people? How do we warn people? First of all, we need to prepare. Prepare properly. And the first way we prepare is something called prayer. In Isaiah 62, 6, talking, Isaiah is talking about the watchman. He says, I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. You who call on the Lord, calling on the Lord, is prayer. Calling, calling on the Lord. Who are we called, who are we to warn someone else if we have not first called on the Lord? If I don't know, if I haven't prayed, and I, I'm not, I don't have my life together, who am I to call someone else out? Prayer and repentance. Get right with God first. Starting with prayer. Seek God. So if we're getting ready to warn, we see somebody in error in the ways, seek God first, yourself. Start with God, that. And second, read the word. Read the word. Study. Ezekiel 33 says, the message came to me from the Lord. What does this say? What does the Bible say? It comes from the word. It's not, it, it is God's word we speak, not our own. We, it's not our own biases, our prejudices, not our perspectives, but God's. And we have to work, sometimes we have to work really hard to avoid judgmentalism. Prayer and study of God's word gives us a perspective necessary to know how to warn. How to warn. We realize all of sin and fall short of the glory. We realize our own sinfulness. We realize God's grace and forgiveness for us. There's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. Only humility, love, and non-judgment. So prepare properly. When we're getting ready to be in the warning role, pray, seek God Seek his word. And second, take the initiative. Take the initiative. James 5.20 makes it clear that if someone is wandering, we are to take the initiative. If you see somebody wandering, take the initiative. Now, it's great when we find a, a lost person and they know they're lost. They know they're lost. But it's really hard to warn somebody they don't know they're lost. They, they don't know they're lost. They're I'm not lost. I know where I am. It's like the proverbial man driving through the countryside. I, I don't need directions. 
I'm not lost. I knew where I was all the time. It's easier to warn people and tell them the truth when they know they're lost. And Jesus said, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Not just those who know they're lost. The lost. Some people don't know they're lost. Take the initiative. Most are lost and they don't know it. Most are in danger and don't know it. Many are wandering from the truth and don't know it. So how do we tell them? Prepare, prayer in the word, take the initiative, and let her see, tell the truth. Tell the truth. If someone has wandered from the truth, heading for certain death, tell them they're heading for certain death. We've been so brainwashed by political correctness and, and inoffensive language and talking. It'd be like the watchman on the wall debating with himself. Okay, the enemy is upon us. Let's see, a trumpet, trumpet's kind of loud. Maybe a, maybe a flute or a violin would be softer. Maybe a different tune, something more pleasant to warn everybody. Ah, timing is bad. I'm going to warn later. And how can I warn the people in a sensitive way so I don't offend them? Okay. No, the enemy is upon them. Tell them truth, the truth, loudly. Now the enemy is bearing down on you. When people's lives are in danger, we don't worry about being sensitive. Now, that said, let me qualify that. We need to tell the truth. But, fourthly, letter D, love them. Love them. People will accept a warning if they know you care about them. James 5 says, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death. And death here talks about spiritual death or separation from God. Another way to say it, spiritual death, separation from God, hell. Hell. Save him from hell. There is a hell. Jesus spent more time warning about hell than talking about heaven. Why? Because we needed to be warned. We needed to be warned. When I was in my 20s in seminary, I worked a summer job as a Washington State lifeguard at a state park in Washington State. And there were four of us lifeguards who worked rotating shifts. And on busy days and holidays, all of us were on duty. And on weekdays, there were only two of us. It was interesting because some summer days, as happens here, not that often, but some summer days are rainy and cloudy. And so we still had to be on duty, even though nobody was swimming. We had to be there. So there were days that we had long hours to talk. So I had long talks with my fellow lifeguards. One lifeguard in particular, his name was Vince, was very interested in theology. He knew I was in seminary, so we talked for hours about Bible and religion and all of these things. He didn't profess to be a believer. But over the, over the summer, we developed a strong friendship. And near the end of the summer, Vince and I were having one of our in-depth conversations, and I felt I needed to warn him blow the trumpet, so to speak. We were friends. He knew I cared about him. I had no agenda or ulterior motives. So I warned him about the consequences of not accepting God's gift of salvation through Jesus. I warned him about hell. Jesus said it's a fire that never goes out. It's a place of torment. Now, if I had tried to tell Vince about hell the first week I worked with him, he would have blown me off as a fanatic and said, you are nuts, I'm not going to talk to you. 
He would have avoided ever talking to me again. But this particular day, at the end of the summer, he listened because he knew I loved him. He knew I cared about him. And I cared about his future and his eternal destination. He knew that. When we warn, when we warn, it must be in the context of relationship. Love, love. We earn the right to warn. Information without relationship is totally ineffective. Do you want to warn? Is there somebody you want to warn? Love first. Love first. In Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. What was he saying? He was saying there are a lot of people on the road to hell. A lot of people. And our job as watchmen is to warn them. James 5.20 says the one who brings that person back will save a sinner from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. NIV says it will cover over a multitude of sins. That applies to our fellow believers. We see somebody wandering. What do we do? We love them, warn them. Now what happens when we warn people? What happens? Our hope is they turn around, they repent and return. There are only two responses to a warning. Rejection, which in this case results in spiritual death. And some people will reject your warning. We're not responsible for their response. We're responsible for the warning. And there's acceptance. And that would be repentance resulting in forgiveness and restoration. To repent means to turn or return. Turn from sin to God. It's a 180 degree turn. A turn to God with all their heart, soul, and mind. In the New Testament, there are two words that describe repentance. Epistrepho, which is a change of direction. And metaneo, which is a radical change, an inner transformation. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 describes that. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Repent, change, a radical change brought about by the Spirit of the living God. Rejection or repentance? What is the response? We hope and trust that when we are called to warn people that they would listen and they would accept forgiveness and return to God. Our purpose for being a watchman is always redemptive and our motive for being a watchman is always love. That is our warning role. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that you give us direction and you give us purpose and understanding. And I know, Lord Jesus, we, some, some of us, temper, as far as our temperaments, we're a lot more hesitant to warn. Other people are more comfortable with that. 
But I just pray, God, that we would take the gifts you've given us and look at what you call us to do as a warning role. And if, if we see unbelievers out there that are lost, they know it or not, and that, God, you would give us the wisdom and the love and the relationships to be able to share with them because their eternal destination is at stake. And, Father, for those within our fellowship that are wandering from truth or wandering from righteousness, moral issues or whatever, that you give us the wisdom and love to turn them and to confront them, to warn them, so they, too, can have the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.